Section 3 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France From the Earliest Times This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 2 the Gauls out of Gaul, Part Two. The Romans had good ground for keeping a watchful eye, from the time they met them, upon the Gauls, and for dreading them particularly. At the time when they determined to pursue them into the mountains of Asia Minor, they were just at the close of a desperate struggle, maintained against them for four hundred years in Italy itself. A struggle, says Sallust, in which it was a question, not of glory, but of existence, for Rome. It was but just now remarked that at the beginning of the sixth century before our era, whilst under their chieftain Sigovesus, the Gallic bands whose history has occupied the last few pages were crossing the Rhine and entering Germany. Other bands, under the command of Belovesus, were traversing the Alps and swarming into Italy. From 587 to 521 B.C., five Gallic expeditions formed of Gallic, Kimric, and Ligurian tribes followed the same route, and invaded successively the two banks of the Po, the bottomless river, as they called it. The Etruscans, who had long before, it will be remembered, themselves wrested that country from a people of Gallic origin, the Umbrians, or Ambrans, could not make head against the new conquerors, aided, maybe, by the remains of the old population. The well-built towns, the cultivation of the country, the ports and canals that had been dug, nearly all these labors of Etruscan civilization disappeared beneath the footsteps of these barbarous hordes that knew only how to destroy, and one of which gave its chieftain the name of Hurricane, Eliotus, Elidov. Scarcely five Etruscan towns, Mantua and Ravenna, amongst others, escaped the disaster. The Gauls also founded towns such as Mediolanum, Milan, Brixia, Brescia, Verona, Bononia, Bologna, Senagalica, Sinigaglia, etc., but for a long while they were no more than entrenched camps, fortified places, where the population shut themselves up in case of necessity. Quote, they, as a general rule, straggled about the country, says Polybius, the most correct and clear-sighted of the ancient historians, slipping on grass or straw, living on nothing but meat, busying themselves about nothing but war and a little husbandry, and counting as riches nothing but flocks and gold, the only goods that can be carried away at pleasure and on every occasion. During nearly thirty years, the Gauls thus scoured not only Upper Italy, which they had almost to themselves, but all the eastern coast and up to the head of the peninsula, encountering along the Adriatic, 
and in the rich and effeminate cities of Magna Graecia, Sibarius, Tarentum, Crotona, and Locri, no enemy capable of resisting them. But in the year 391 B.C., finding themselves cooped up in their territory, a strong band of Gauls crossed the Apennines and went to demand from the Etruscans of Clusium the cession of a portion of their lands. The only answer Clusium made was to close her gates. The Gauls formed up around the walls. Clusium asked help from Rome, with whom, notwithstanding the rivalry between the Etruscan and Roman nations, she had lately been on good terms. The Romans promised first their good offices with the Gauls, afterwards material support, and thus were brought face to face those two peoples, fated to continue for four centuries a struggle which was to be ended only by the complete subjection of Gaul. The details of that struggle belong specially to Roman history. They have been transmitted to us only by Roman historians. And the Romans, it was who were left ultimately in possession of the battlefield, that is, of Italy. It will suffice here to make known the general march of events, and the most characteristic incidents. Four distinct periods may be recognized in this history, and each marks a different phase in the course of events, and, so to speak, an act of the drama. During the first period, which lasted forty-two years, from 391 to 349 B.C., the Gauls carried on a war of aggression and conquest against Rome. Not that such had been their original design. On the contrary, they replied when the Romans offered intervention between them and Clusium. We asked only for lands, of which we are in need, and Clusium has more than she can cultivate. Of the Romans we know very little, but we believe them to be a brave people, since the Etruscans put themselves under their protection. Remain spectators of our quarrel. We will settle it before your eyes, that you may report at home how far above other men the Gauls are in valour. But when they saw their pretensions repudiated, and themselves treated with outrageous disdain, the Gauls left the siege of Clusium on the spot, and set out for Rome, not stopping for plunder, and proclaiming everywhere on their march, We are bound for Rome, we make war on none but Romans. And when they encountered the Roman army, on the 16th of July, 390 B.C., at the confluence of the Alia and the Tiber, half a day's march from Rome, they abruptly struck up their war-chant, and throw themselves upon their enemies. It is well known how they gained the day, how they entered Rome, and found none but a few grey-beards, who, being unable or willing to leave their abode, had remained seated in the vestibule on their chairs of ivory, with truncheons of ivory in their hands, and decorated with the insignia of the public offices they had filled. All the people of Rome had fled, and were wandering over the country, or seeking a refuge amongst neighboring peoples. Only the Senate and a thousand warriors had shut themselves up in the capital, a citadel which commanded the city. The Gauls kept them besieged there for seven months. The circumstances of this celebrated siege are well known, though they have been a little embellished by the Roman historians. 
not that they have spoken too highly of the Romans themselves, who in the day of their country's disaster showed admirable courage, perseverance, and hopefulness. Pontius Cominius, who traversed the Gallic camp, swam the Tiber, and scaled by night the heights of the capital, to go and carry news to the Senate. Marcus Manlius, who was the first, and for some moments the only one, to hold in check from the citadel's walls the Gauls on the point of effecting an entrance, and Marcus Furius Camillus, who had been banished from Rome the preceding year, and had taken refuge in the town of Ardea, and who instantly took the field for his country, rallied the Roman fugitives, and incessantly harassed the Gauls, our true heroes, who have earned their weed of glory. Let no man seek to lower them in public esteem. Noble actions are so beautiful, and the actors often receive so little recompense, that we are at least bound to hold sacred the honour attached to their name. The Roman historians have done no more than justice in extolling the saviours of Rome. But their memory would have suffered no loss had the whole truth been made known, and the claims of national vanity are not of the same weight as the duty one owes to truth. Now it is certain that Camillus did not gain such decisive advantages over the Gauls as the Roman accounts would lead one to believe, and that the deliverance of Rome was much less complete. On the 13th of February, 389 B.C., the Gauls, it is true, allowed their retreat to be purchased by the Romans, and they experienced, as they retired, certain checks, whereby they lost a part of their booty. But twenty-three years afterwards they are found in Latium, scouring in every direction the outlying country of Rome, without the Romans daring to go out and fight them. It was only at the end of five years, in the year 361 B.C., that, the very city being menaced anew, the legions marched out to meet the enemy. Surprised at this audacity, says Polybius, the Gauls fell back, but merely a few leagues from Rome, to the environs of Tiber, and thence, for the space of twelve years, they attacked the Roman territory, renewing the campaign every year, often reaching the very gates of the city, and being repulsed indeed, but never further than Tiber and its slopes. Rome, however, made great efforts every war, with the Gauls was previously proclaimed a tumult, which involved a levy in mass of the citizens, without any exemption, even for old men and priests. A treasure, specially dedicated to Gallic wars, was laid by in the capital, and religious denunciations of the most awful kind hung over the head of whoever should dare to touch it, no matter what the exigency might be. To this epoch belong those marvels of daring recorded in Roman tradition, those acts of heroism tinged with fable, which are met with among so many peoples, either in their earliest age or in their days of great peril. In the year 361 B.C., Titus Manlius, son of him who had saved the capital from the night attack of the Gauls, and twelve years later, Marcus Valerius, a young military tribune, were, it will be remembered, the two Roman heroes who vanquished in single combat the two Gallic giants who insolently defied Rome. The gratitude towards them was general, and of long duration, 
for two centuries afterwards, in the year 167 B.C., the head of the Gaul with his tongue out still appeared at Rome, above the shop of a money-changer, on a circular signboard, called the Cimmerian Shield, Scrutum Cimberium. After seventeen years' stay in Latium, the Gauls at last withdrew, and returned to their adopted country in those lovely valleys of the Po, which already bore the name of Cisalpine Gaul. They began to get disgusted with a wandering life. Their population multiplied, their towns spread, their fields were better cultivated, their manners became less barbarous. For fifty years there was scarcely any trace of hostility or even contact between them and the Romans. But at the beginning of the third century before our era, the coalition of the Samnites and Etruscans against Rome was near its climax. They eagerly pressed the Gauls to join, and the latter assented easily. Then commenced the second period of struggles between the two peoples. Rome had taken breath, and had grown much more rapidly than her rivals. Instead of shutting herself up, as theretofore, within her walls, she forthwith raised three armies, took the offensive against the coalitionists, and carried the war into their territory. The Etruscans rushed to the defence of their hearts. The two consuls, Fabius and Decius, immediately attacked the Samnites and Gauls at the foot of the Apennines, close to Sentinum, now Sentina. The battle was just beginning, when a hind, pursued by a wolf from the mountains, passed in flight between the two armies, and threw herself upon the side of the Gauls, who slew her. The wolf turned towards the Romans, who let him go. "'Comrades,' cried the soldier, "'flight and death are on the side where you see stretched on the ground the hind of Diana. The wolf belongs to Mars, he is unwounded, and reminds us of our father and founder. We shall conquer even as he.' Nevertheless, the battle went badly for the Romans. Several legions were in flight, and Decius strove vainly to rally them. The memory of his father came across his mind. There was a belief amongst the Romans that if, in the midst of an unsuccessful engagement, the general devoted himself to the infernal gods, panic and flight passed forthwith to the enemy's ranks. "'Why daily?' said Decius to the Grand Pontiff, whom he had ordered to follow him and keep at his side in the flight. "'Tis given to our race to die to avert public disasters.' He halted, placed a javelin beneath his feet, and covering his head with a fold of his robe, and supporting his chin on his right hand, repeated after the pontiff the sacred form of words, Janus, Jupiter, our father Mars, Quinrius, Bellona, Lares, ye gods in whose power are we, we and our enemies, God's manes, ye I adore, Ye I pray, ye I adjure to give strength and victory to the Roman people, the children of Quirinus, and to send confusion, panic, and death amongst the enemies of the Roman people, the children of Quirinus. And in these words for the republic of the children of Quirinus, for the army, for the legions, and for the allies of the Roman people, I devote to the gods' manes, and to the grave, the legions and the allies of the enemy and myself. 
Then remounting, Decius charged into the middle of the Gauls, where he soon fell pierced with wounds. But the Romans recovered courage and gained the day, for heroism and piety have power over the hearts of men, so that at the moment of admiration they become capable of imitation. During this second period, Rome was more than once in danger. In the year 283 B.C., the Gauls destroyed one of her armies near Arisium, Arezzo, and advanced to the Roman frontier, saying, We are bound for Rome. The Gauls know how to take it. Seventy-two years afterwards, the Cisalpine Gauls swore they would not put off their bodericks till they had mounted the capital, and they arrived within three days' march of Rome. At every appearance of this formidable enemy, the alarm at Rome was great. The Senate raised all its forces and summoned its allies. The people demanded a consultation of the Sibylline books, sacred volumes sold, it was said, to Tarquinius Priscius by the Sibyl Amalthea, and containing the secret of the destinies of the Republic. They were actually opened in the year 228 B.C., and it was with horror found that the Gauls would twice take possession of the soil of Rome. On the advice of the priests, there was dug within the city, in the middle of the cattle market, a huge pit, in which two Gauls, a man and a woman, were entombed alive. For thus they took possession of the soil of Rome. The oracle was fulfilled, and the mishap averted. Thirteen years afterwards, on occasion of the disaster at Cannes, the same atrocity was again committed, at the same place, and for the same cause. And by a strange contrast, there was at the committing of this barbarous act, quote, which was against Roman usage, end quote, says Livy, a secret feeling of horror, for to appease the manes of the victims, a sacrifice was instituted, which was celebrated every year at the pit, in the month of November. In spite of sometimes urgent peril, in spite of popular alarms, Rome, during the course of this period, from 299 to 258 B.C., maintained an increasing ascendancy over the Gauls. She always cleared them off her territory, several times ravaged theirs, on the two banks of the Po, called respectively Transpadan and Cispadan Gaul and gained the majority of the great battles she had to fight. Finally, in the year 283 B.C., the proprietor Drusus, after having ravaged the country of the Sinonic Gauls, carried off the very ingots and jewels, it was said, which had been given to their ancestors as the price of their retreat. Solemn proclamation was made that the ransom of the capital had returned within its walls, and sixty years afterwards, the consul Marcus Claudius Marcellus, having defeated at Clastridium a numerous army of Gauls, and with his own hand slain their general, Verdrumar, had the honor of dedicating to the temple of Jupiter the third grand spoils taken since the foundation of Rome, and of ascending the capital, himself conveying the armor of Verdumar, for he had got hewn an oaken trunk, round which he had arranged a helmet, tunic, and breastpiece of the barbarian king. Nor was war Rome's only weapon against her enemies. Besides the ability of her generals and the discipline of her legions, 
she had the sagacity of her senate. The Gauls were not wanting in intelligence or dexterity, but being too free to go quietly under a master's hand, and too barbarous for self-government, carried away as they were by the interest or passion of the moment, they could not long act either in concert or with sameness of purpose. Far-sightedness and the spirit of persistence were, on the contrary, the familiar virtues of the Roman Senate. So soon as they had penetrated Cisalpine Gaul, they laboured to gain there a permanent footing, either by sowing dissension amongst the Gallic peoplets that lived there, or by founding Roman colonies. In the year 283 B.C., several Roman families arrived, with colours flying, and under the guidance of three triumvirs or commissioners, on a territory to the northeast on the borders of the Adriatic. The triumvirs had a round hole dug, and there deposited some fruits and a handful of earth brought from Roman soil. Then, yoking to a plough, having a copper share, a white bowl, and a white heifer, they marked out by a furrow a large enclosure. The rest followed, flinging within the line the ridges thrown up by the plough. When the line was finished, the bull and the heifer were sacrificed with due pomp. It was a Roman colony come to settle at Senna, on the very site of the chief town of those Senonic Gauls who had been conquered and driven out. Fifteen years afterwards, another Roman colony was founded at Ariminium, Rimini, on the frontier of the Bolden Gauls. Fifty years later still, two others, on the two banks of the Po, Cremona and Placentia, Plaisance. Rome had then, in the midst of her enemies, garrisons, magazines of arms and provisions, and means of supervision and communication. Thence proceeded at one time troops, and another intrigues, to carry dismay or disunion amongst the Gauls. Towards the close of the third century before our era, the triumphs of Rome in Cisalpine Gaul seemed nigh to accomplishment, when news arrived that the Romans' most formidable enemy, Hannibal, meditating a passage from Africa into Italy by Spain and Gaul, was already at work by his emissaries to ensure for his enterprise the concurrence of the Transalpine and Cisalpine Gauls. The Senate ordered the envoys they had just then at Carthage to traverse Gaul on returning, and seek out allies there against Hannibal. The envoys halted amongst the Gallo-Iberian peoplets who lived at the foot of the eastern Pyrenees. There, in the midst of the warriors assembled in arms, they charged them in the name of the great and powerful Roman people, not to suffer the Carthaginians to pass through their territory. Tumultuous laughter arose at a request that appeared so strange. "'You wish us,' was the answer, "'to draw down war upon ourselves, to avert it from Italy, "'and to give our own fields over to devastation to save yours. "'We have no cause to complain of the Carthaginians, "'or to be pleased with the Romans, "'or to take up arms for Romans and against the Carthaginians. "'We, on the contrary, hear that the Roman people drive out from their lands in Italy, "'men of our nation, impose tribute upon them.' and make them undergo other indignities. So, the envoys of Rome quitted Gaul without allies. Hannibal, on the other hand, 
did not meet with all the favour and all the enthusiasm he had anticipated. Between the Pyrenees and the Alps, several peoplets united with him, and several showed coldness, or even hostility, and his passage of the Alps the mountain tribes harassed him incessantly. Indeed, in Cisalpine Gaul itself there was great division and hesitation, for Rome had succeeded in inspiring her partisans with confidence and her enemies with fear. Hannibal was often obliged to resort to force even against the Gauls whose alliance he courted, and to ravage their lands in order to drive them to take up arms. Nay, at the conclusion of an alliance, and in the very camp of the Carthaginians, the Gauls sometimes hesitated still, and sometimes rose against Hannibal, accused him of ravaging their country, and refused to obey his orders. However, the delights of victory and of pillage at last brought into full play the Cisalpine Gauls' natural hatred for Rome. After Ticinius and Trebia, Hannibal had no more zealous and devoted troops. At the battle of Lake Trasimene, he lost fifteen hundred men, nearly all Gauls. At that of Canine, he had thirty thousand of them, forming two-thirds of his army. And at the moment of action, they cast away their tunics and checkered cloaks, similar to the plaids of the Gals or Scottish Highlanders, and fought naked from the belt upwards, according to their custom when they meant to conquer or die. Of five thousand and five hundred men that the victory of Cannae cost Hannibal, four thousand were Gauls. All Cisalpine Gaul was moved. Enthusiasm was at its height. New bands hurried off to recruit the army of the Carthaginian who, by dint of patience and genius, brought Rome within an acre of destruction, with the assistance almost entirely of the barbarians he had come to seek at her gates and whom he had at first found so cowed and so vacillating. When the day of reverses came, and Rome had recovered her ascendancy, the Gauls were faithful to Hannibal, and when at length he was forced to return to Africa, the Gallic bands, whether from despair or attachment, followed him thither. In the year 200 B.C., at the famous Battle of Zama, which decided matters between Rome and Carthage, they again formed a third of the Carthaginian army, and showed that they were, in the words of Livy, quote, inflamed by that innate hatred towards the Romans which is peculiar to their race. End quote. This was the third period of the struggle between the Gauls and the Romans in Italy. Rome, well advised by this terrible war of the danger with which she was ever menaced by the Cisalpine Gauls, formed the resolution of no longer restraining them, but of subduing them and conquering their territory. She spent thirty years, from 200 to 170 B.C., in the execution of this design, proceeding by means of war, of founding Roman colonies, and of sowing dissension amongst the Gallic peoplets. In vain did the two principal, the Boians and the Insubrians, endeavour to rouse and rally all the rest. Some hesitated, some absolutely refused, and remained neutral. The resistance was obstinate. The Gauls, driven from their fields and their towns, established themselves as their ancestors had done, 
in the forests, whence they emerged only to fall furiously upon the Romans. And then, if the engagement were indecisive, if any legions wavered, the Roman centurions hurled their colors into the midst of the enemy, and the legionaries dashed on at all risks to recover them. At Parma and Bologna, in the towns taken from the Gauls, Roman colonies came at once and planted themselves. Day by day did Rome advance. At length, in the year 190 B.C., the wrecks of the 112 tribes which had formed the nation of the Boreans, unable any longer to resist, and unwilling to submit, rose as one man, and departed from Italy. The Senate, with its usual wisdom, multiplied the number of Roman colonies in the conquered territory, treated with moderation the tribes that submitted, and gave to Cisalpine Gaul the name of Cisalpine, or Hither Gallic Province, which was afterwards changed for that of Gallia Togata, or Roman Gaul. Then, declaring that nature herself had placed the Alps between Gaul and Italy as an insurmountable barrier, the Senate pronounced a curse on whosoever should attempt to cross it. End of chapter 2